Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you all. Uh, I had a very uneventful week, to, uh, to my great delight. Uh, if you were here last week, you would get that joke. If not, you can listen to our podcast um, and, uh, and get into the know. Um, we are having some technical challenges this week, so um, if, if you suddenly, uh, you know, if I, if I hear like gas or like clapping randomly, I'll know that the projector behind me has suddenly started to work, um, and I'll turn around and rejoice with you. I was back there trying everything I could. Uh, yes, we turned it off and on, off and on. <laughs> Uh, I, d- I think I did everything I know how to do except for blow in it. That's the only other thing I know. Um, it's, it used to work with Nintendo. <sighs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know where we're going to be and uh, the verses that we're going to do. Um, in fact, we're going to be in Luke 14. So if somebody wants to pull that uh, out of the Bibles and let me know what page number that's on, um, then... People can either follow along that way, you can use your apps or whatever. We are uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We've been in Luke uh, really since the beginning of this year. Uh, we're going to wrap up at Easter time. 729. Thanks, Amy. 729. Um, so we're, we're, we're traveling through with Jesus and the disciples in the Gospel of Luke, headed towards Jerusalem, and we're focusing specifically on uh, the stories and teachings of Jesus that highlight how he brings outsiders in, and how he challenges insiders uh, to a different sort of life. So we're calling it uh, Outside In, God's Kingdom for Outcasts. Um, and what we're, we're finding is that, uh, that God's love, the way that it operates in community, is that it's a centering love. We use that word, uh, we've used that word throughout the series. And what I mean by that is that it takes those that are on the margins, those that who have been forgotten and overlooked and mistreated, and it makes them central to the conversation. It gives them the seat of honor. Uh, it, it brings those who've experienced uh, the shame uh, of the community in, and it makes them the ones who receive the accolades to the, the scandalization of everybody else, to rethink how God's love works in community. So we're, we're trying to learn lessons from Jesus and his disciples as he's continuing to teach this same uh, message in all these different ways and all these different circumstances uh, as we go along. So surprise, we've come to another one. Right? We're, we're, we're not uh, coming to any sort of shortage of these types of stories. So we are in Luke 14. It has to do with eating. Um, at a party, a dinner party again, and uh, so I'm gonna, I want to hit verse one, but then I'm gonna um, concentrate on verses seven to fourteen, okay? Luke fourteen, verse one, and then jump down to verse seven. It says this: One Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. He was being carefully watched. Verse seven. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say to you, give this person your seat. 
Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. When Jesus uh, said, then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Um, so I, this week I started to uh, go back to the gym for the first time in more than a year. It's been, it's probably been longer than that. It was so long ago that um, everyone was wearing masks the last time I was there. So that kind of gives you an idea of the time frame, um, which is not a great uh, way to exercise. Let me tell you, there's a reason I stopped. Um, but I noticed that uh, they changed out a lot of the equipment from when I was there last, and they moved some of the equipment around. So I had to sort of relearn the lay of the land. And I noticed a couple things. One, for some reason, I don't know why, every piece of equipment was harder to use than it was over a year ago. And I don't know what they did with those things, but I wish they would change them back. Um, the, the second thing that I noticed is that there were all these new stickers on everything. And the stickers that were on each piece of equipment say two words, you belong, um, which is genius marketing uh, for a gym because uh, gyms are notoriously like a Petri dish for everything wrong with humanity and how we relate to each other. Um, so you, you throw like a whole bunch of strangers into a room, you take off half their clothing, and then you tell them like, don't compare and contrast yourself to everybody else in this room who is also trying to get healthy. Like, just don't do it. Um, so the you belong message, I think, is a, is a pretty good one because gyms are like, you constantly feel uh, out of place among uh, these, these people. Or at least you, you feel like you're, uh, sort of trying to find your place in this hierarchy of people. Um, because you've you got like the lunks over here that are like grunting and doing, you know, uh, 200 pounds, and then you've you got everybody else in between. And you're trying to figure out like your place among this uh, ragtag group of people. And I've noticed that, so I've had this like internal monologue of comparison uh, at the gym with other gym goers. So I, like in, I'm trying not to have these thoughts, but... I notice myself having these thoughts of like, yeah, I definitely haven't been here as long as that guy for sure. Grant, I've been here a week, right? So like I'm, I'm giving myself grace. But then I look over at other people and I'm like, I'm definitely further along than that guy, you know? Um, or you go up to a piece of equipment and, and the, the guy before you, you know, he, he was doing what on the lap pole? Like, I can do way more than that. And then you go to another piece of equipment, you saw this, like, uh, you know, 100-pound girl come off of it, and, and you're like, oh, I, I want to change that, but it took 
a lower setting, but I don't want anybody to see me that I can't do as much as she can, you know? Um, one, one, of the, one of the changes it, that they made is they, when they changed the equipment around, one of the things that when I met with a trainer that they had advised me to do was to do like these medicine balls, you know? So you pick up these heavy medicine balls over your head and you slam them into the ground. It makes a really loud noise. Well, this is fine to do if you're like in the back, in the corner, but they move the medicine balls like in the front, in front of like all the, the like the, the, um, the elliptical machines and the treadmills. Like everybody in the gym has to watch me go bam, you know? I'm like, so I'm not going to do that one. I'm just not going to do it. I don't want to make that much noise. That's not what I'm here for. Um, but the, these internal games, uh, we don't just play them at the gym. Uh, the, these games that we play in terms of relationships with other people, jockeying for position, trying to figure out how we fit into the hierarchy of who's on top and who's on the bottom, um, it, it comes with us everywhere. We, we have these questions about how we fit, whether or not we belong. Um, and like I said, we carry these into every space and into every relationship environment of our life, into our friendships, into our work, alongside our colleagues or our bosses. You may be um, experiencing some of that even this morning uh, here in church relationships. Uh, sometimes this for- shows up in terms of uh, projecting an image that we want to display or maintain because that will help us to uh, settle our place into a community. And, and all this comes out of the fact that we want to be accepted and thought well of. We want to move up the ladder, so to speak. We want to appear interested and in, in a lively part of the community, but not too eager, right? Not too eager. Friends, we come by this inclination honestly. None of us decided to have these strategies for how to belong. Um, we've racked up experiences over time that tell us a very clear message that if we want to be accepted, then we have to play this game with everyone else because everybody else plays this game too. You can't just come as you are, right? Because who you are just isn't good enough. At least that's the story we tell ourselves. But today, friends, we proclaim good news to that bad news that in the kingdom of God, there are no musical chairs. Your place with God and with God's people is not up for grabs. You don't need to stay vigilant lest somebody else steal it away while you're not looking. In fact, you are free to offer your seat knowing that the table of God is always expanding. There are always more chairs. We belong. You belong at Jesus' table, and we belong to one another. That's the good news. So, um, when I was in uh, uh, college ministry, which was, it's been a minute, okay? Um, we had this term for uh, when, when relationships weren't clear, when there had to be like some, some defining going on. You're, you're, Matthew knows the term. It's called a DTR. Anybody ever hear this? Which is, it stands for define the relationship. So it was, it was used a lot in like dating situations where you have two people who are sort of hanging out. Maybe they're friends. Maybe they're interested in one another. But both of them seem to have like 
they, they haven't defined, like, how they're in relationship with each other. Uh, and maybe, you know, one person or both, like, wants more than uh, just a friendship, but they haven't expressed it. There's this awkward tension because no one's addressing the elephant in the room. And so, like, one of the primary things that is, like, a campus minister or, like, a, a missionary to college students you'd have to do would be, like, hey, would you just, like, get, just do a DTR and figure it out? Like, are you dating? Are you friends? Like, what's going on, you know? Um, so that's a DTR. Now, it turns out, like, it's not just good for uh, dating relationships. I think um, we're, we're constantly in a state of needing a DTR when it comes to how we relate to other people. Because we, we walk into these rooms of our life, and we're always navigating these questions like, who am I to you, and who are you to me? How do we relate to each other? All these things go unspoken, but they have major impacts on the way that we see ourselves as a place and community. Um, thankfully, Jesus is really good at doing DTRs. He's really good. In fact, he did one here, if you, if you noticed in our, our story today, uh, because it's all about how people are relating to one another, and Jesus calls out what he sees and calls people into a better way to relate. So Jesus receives uh, an invitation to a dinner party at what Luke calls a prominent Pharisee's house, which, if you've been around a minute, uh, as we've been going through this series, I, I, I came to this uh, Luke 14, I was like, what are the Pharisees thinking continuing to invite Jesus to dinner parties? Like, uh, every time he comes to one, he ends up humiliating the host in front of everybody else. And like, chaos ensues. I, I don't know how he keeps getting invitations, to be honest with you. <sighs> yeah, right, right. They, eventually they did stop, yes. Um, that's true, that's true, yeah, yeah. They, they hadn't heard about uh, Capernaum and all these other places yet. Um, so Jesus goes to this particular party, and he, he notices the way that people are picking their seats for the dinner table. And so he says to the guests in verse 7, when you are invited, take the lowest place. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He inverses the, um, oh, oh, nobody clapped. Here's, <laughs> all right, there it is. All right, great. Thanks, James. You're going to have to tell me what you did later. You probably don't even know, do you? <laughs> <laughs> he blew in it. Um, all right. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus inverts what he sees people doing. The common thing to do when you showed up was to look for the highest place that you could get to. You surveyed the crowd, figured out where you fit, and then you jockeyed for the greatest position. And Jesus says, don't do that. Now, at first glance, it sounds a bit like Jesus is, um, is just giving a new strategy for how to, like, get, get low by, by uh, or get high by making yourself low, you know? Um, that it's sort of like this is Jesus' take on how to win friends and influence people um, and how to make your way up in the world as if Jesus is going, now, when you go to a party, don't act too eager 
around the host because you can't let people know that you want the seat of honor, right? You do want it, but you can't let people know that you want it. So play it cool. Chill out. And just maybe in front of everyone, you'll get it, even though you didn't ask for it. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? Now, I want to contend that this is not what Jesus is saying. He's not giving us an etiquette lesson on how to be blessed. He's, in fact, he, what he's doing is he's teaching what relationships look like around the table that he sets. That he, as the host, sets us free from the games that we play and how to jockey position. He, he talks to insiders. Maybe we're, maybe we're the insiders this morning because Jesus is speaking to insiders. And he's saying, look, you don't have to play this game anymore because there are always going to be more seats. So I don't think that this is advice for us to do, but it's how to live in the Spirit. Jesus is showing us how to make a place for others, in fact, in the life of the kingdom. That we can even give up our place of honor for those with less honor, just as Jesus himself gave up his seat of honor for us. Church, the good news today is that the kingdom of God is not musical chairs. You don't have to scramble or scheme to make sure that there's a seat for you. There is always enough room at the table of Jesus. Give up your place even, if God should call you to. Because we belong to him and we belong to each other. Now, um, there are other places that this, the motivation for how we live this out gets fleshed out a little bit more uh, in terms of hospitality towards other people. I think one of those places happens in Hebrews 13, which I think it's actually going to be on the screen. So um, maybe you won't need that page number. So Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 3 say this, Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitalities to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, whoo boy, that's another sermon, right? We're not going to get to explaining that one today. What I want you to focus on is verse 3, when, when the author says this, continue to remember those in prison, get this, as if you were together with them in prison. And those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. That's radical. That is radical. Notice the motivation behind the love that Hebrews calls for. We don't love and welcome people because it will compel God to love and welcome us. That's not it. And we don't need to love others in order to scramble and scheme a blessing out of God as if He's not willing and ready to give us blessing. That's not it. We're not to do these things out of a sense of obligation or shame or fear that if we don't love well, we might be left out or left behind. That's not it. The motivation that Hebrews calls for to welcome and care for strangers and to love those in prison, what the New Testament calls practicing hospitality, loving strangers, is because this is what it means to be human. 
And this is the center of it. That what happens to you is what happens to me. I'm going to say that again because it's so important. What hap- whatever happens to you is what happens to me. And what happens to me is what happens to you. And whatever happens to them, the stranger, the outcast, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the, the imprisoned, what happens to them is what happens to us. We are one in the same. It's that radical. It's not compassion for compassion's sake. It's not be good for goodness' sake. It is you are one in the same. You share, it, you, you share a body, as it were, with Jesus as the head. So when it says remember to welcome the outcast and the stranger, what it's saying is their marginalization is our marginalization. When it says remember those in prison, what's happening to them is what's happening to us. Their mistreatment is our mistreatment. The, the, the author goes on in, in chapter 13 to talk about the way that we see finances. It says don't, don't uh, concern yourselves with the love of money. Because the lie is, again, that, that we would look at our money as a tool of self-fulfillment. As a way to hoard things for ourselves because we've earned it for ourselves. And so we will use it on ourselves. And it says, don't, this is not the way of Jesus. So the logic of the kingdom runs entirely different than the logic of money. The logic of the kingdom is that wealth is a way of making sure that everyone's needs are met. That your lack is my, is my lack. And so if I have a way to make up for your lack, then I can either choose to love my money and the false sense of security that it provides me, or I can love my brother and sister. I, can do not, I, I cannot serve both masters. This is radical, friends, right? This is radical. This is Jesus' challenge to the insiders. Um, and this is the heartbeat of the New Testament. It's everywhere. We just don't often see it because we're trained by our individualistic Western lives, right? To think of ourselves as autonomous faith units. Me and Jesus. Me and Jesus alone. But this isn't the way that the New Testament was written. In fact, um, so there was a, a bishop of Carthage named Cyprian all the way back in 258 A.D. He's reading the New Testament, and he notices that even in the Lord's Prayer, you know, Our Father, uh, it's written with all this we language in it, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Why all the we language? It's all third person. Or second person. What is that? First person plural. There it is. <laughs> I remember. Um, all of it is. There are no singulars. He says this. Our prayer is general and for all, and we 
And when we pray, we pray not for one person, but for us all, because, very simply, we are all one. We are all one. See, the kingdom is all about moving from a life about me to a life of mutuality, interdependence, equals with one another, considering every need my own, and entrusting my needs to the community. It's a completely different logic and framework for being human, especially, especially in the day and age that we live. So when Jesus says in verse 14, you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you, he's talking about who you invite to dinner, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now what is that? Right? I think sometimes we we think of it as like this literal gold crown that Jesus is going to place on our head, and then we'll bring it back to our heavenly mansion and like throw it on the mantle place and be like, look at that. <laughs> People will come over and be like, look, isn't it amazing? I got a crown, you know? I don't think it's that. I, I think what he's talking about is that in the resurrection, everyone will act righteously. You know the word righteous in the New Testament is also the word for justice? Those words are interchangeable. Everyone in the new heavens and the new earth will act according to what's just and right all the time, which means people will live this way always. This is the new reality that's breaking into the world. And Jesus said, if you start practicing it now, guess what? You're ahead of the game. You're in on the secret because this is the way the world's going to work someday. And you get to be participants. In fact, you get to be leaders in, in this new reality that I'm bringing into the world. Everyone's going to look like me, friends. That's what Jesus is saying. Everyone is going to operate according to this kingdom principle because everyone is going to bear God's image because Jesus is going to have his way all in all in all of us. So Jesus and the book of Hebrews, they aren't giving us a new strategy for how to win in this life. They're giving us a new paradigm that we belong to each other so that we can, right now, today, we can rejoice with those who rejoice and we can mourn with those who mourn because we are one. Church, the good news today is that the kingdom of God is not musical chairs. Your place is not up for grabs. You don't need to stay vigilant so lest somebody else slide away your chair when you're not looking, when the music stops. In fact, you are free to offer up your seat knowing that the table of God is always expanding. This is the new reality. We belong at the table and we belong to each other forever, forever. So you don't, you don't have to calculate how to be last now so that you can be first in the future because we're all one flesh. And Jesus himself is the first and the last so that we can belong to each other. But I know um, even though this is true now, this is true about us and for us, um, it's also true that we continuously need to learn how to live into this paradigm. We need a community that we can uh, build trust in so that we can practice this with each other so that 
all of our strategizing and schemes for how to get ahead and get up in the world to keep our place of belonging um, that's been honed for decades through neglect and hurt and abuse and being cast out and ignored, all these things that we've accumulated over time. We need a community to practice these things so that the poison of that way of life can slowly, slowly be drained out of us. Amen? And this is the good news of the kingdom, that God is committed to this work in us. Just because you need to work on this doesn't mean your place is up for grabs. It's okay. We're all, we're all messed up. We're all broken. We all have our strategies and our scheming, me included. And no matter what your prior experience has been, your seat at God's table is not up for grabs. You get to work on it with us. Your acceptedness is decided. And you're not only welcomed, but you're beloved. You're beloved. Unfortunately, though, this hasn't always been the way the good news has been told to us. I think part of the reason that uh, we have this anxiety when it comes to the way that we see even the church is that Jesus' gospel has sometimes been told in a way that emphasizes scarcity over hospitality. Here's what I mean by that. Um, There is a way of sharing the good news of Jesus that goes something like this. There is an exclusive dinner party going on in heaven, but there are only so many seats. So you better say yes to Jesus before your seat is gone. Because if that seat is gone before you say yes, you're going to be condemned for all eternity. There's a narrow gate, and only few find it. And you don't want to be the one who misses out, do you? Scarcity. Now, not only does this uh, framing of the good news paint Jesus as like a really stingy host. I don't know if I want to go to that kind of party, to be honest with you. Right? Um, But it leaves us with this crippling anxiety. Did I really pray that prayer when I was eight? Was I sincere when I prayed it? Did I use the right words when I prayed it? Right? What if my mom didn't say yes in time before she passed? Is she okay? What if there isn't room for my wife or husband who went before me? What if, what if, what if, what if? All these questions, these anxieties, friends, come out of a way of sharing good news in a way that's all about scarcity rather than hospitality. Jesus is a generous host. Friends, you can be free of that anxiety today. Yes, the kingdom of God is like a narrow gate. Jesus says that, and only few find it. But that's not because God wants the gate to be small. He's not limiting a resource so that only few can find it. God is not playing hide-and-seek with you or musical chairs. It's narrow because only a few want it. You hear me? God wishes that nobody should perish. He doesn't want that. He will do everything he can to make sure everyone who can can be with him for as long as they can. 
The gate is narrow because few want the kind of life that the kingdom offers because it's the kind of life that we're talking about this morning. In fact, um, we didn't read it, but if you keep reading in Luke 14, the very next parable that Jesus shares is all about, uh, is all about this idea. A host who, get, who, who, who invites people to a party who's ready to receive them. And what do the guests do? They have all these excuses for why they can't come. That's why few find it, because people are too busy. They have all these excuses. I can't make it because I have to take care of my field. I have to take care of my ox. I, I just got married. They, they, people are so worried about providing for themselves that they can't accept the offer of a generous king. And in, in this parable, Jesus, is, Jesus, who's the host, is so ready to lavishly welcome people to his table that he'll even invite those who can't repay him the favor. The poor, the outcast, the sick. In other words, those who are in touch with their needs. Those who can't provide for themselves. I have no oxen to take care of. I don't know where my next meal's coming from, so of course I'll eat with you. And then Jesus caps it off in verse 23 by saying this, Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in. Like beg, God is begging people to come into the kingdom so that my house will be what? Full. Friends, God is committed to a full house and a full table. The gospel is not come in because soon it'll be too late. That's anxiety producing scarcity and it has nothing to do with Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is, it sounds more like this. Your seat at the banquet is reserved. Dinner has been prepared. It's all ready for you. And so come in and join the party ASAP. Why? Not because if you don't, you'll burn. No, because you're already hungry. Don't you see how hungry you are? Hungry for love. Hungry for grace. Hungry for belonging. Hungry to drop this, the, the, the compare-contrast game. You're hungry. So Come. And meet the one who's been waiting to welcome you. He's even taken the lowest place at the table so that he can serve you with everything he's got. Are you ready? Then come, taste and see how good this Lord is. That's the good news of Jesus. Amen? The kingdom of God is not valuable because it's scarce. It's valuable because it's life. And there's a big difference. The good news that we proclaim today is that God is drawing us into this life. That our acceptedness in God's kingdom is not up for grabs. It's not in question. You're accepted. You're included. And so you don't have to defend your place at the table and worry that you've made the team or worry that even if you gave your seat away that there wouldn't be enough room for you. There's always enough room at the table of Jesus. God's inviting you to say yes to that today.
So um, as we respond, which we do when we hear good news, we try to give ourselves over to it in some way. Um, the most natural way that I can think of to do that is to come to the tables this morning. The tables symbolizing Jesus' body and his blood given for us. So when we come to the tables, we, we, we're saying yes with our bodies. When we get up out of our seats, we're saying, I, God is calling me forward to be included, to belong. Um, so come, coming forward is saying yes. It's saying yes to the fact that Jesus has reserved a seat for you. And we'll explain a little bit more about this in a second. But when we come, we, we gather around the tables and we pray together. And we look at each other and we hold these elements and, we, and we, we pray God's blessing over one another's lives. Um, we also just happen to be having a, a lunch banquet today. Thanks to John for uh, organizing that. Um, but I invite you to come as you are and bring all of you along the way. And you might think to yourself, like, what if I didn't make anything? Okay. Well, then be the people in Jesus' parable and just come anyway. They didn't have anything to give either. Jesus was delighted to have them. And we would be too. Um, but, and then third, like, tweak as you go. Like, every time you notice yourself strategizing or calculating how you belong, when you see yourself trying to put your best foot forward or minimize a struggle in order to be accepted or go into hiding or, or close down, try to notice the anxiety that you feel in relationship to other people. And then ask what God is doing below the surface of that anxiety. It's telling you something about your heart, but it's not telling you the truth of God's reality. And so question it. Not, not in a condemning sort of way, but like with compassion and curiosity. Go, I wonder what's going on in my heart right now that I feel this. Like w when I want to like put the weight up from 40 pounds to 80 because the woman before me is like able to lift more than me. Like why do I, why does my body want to do that? <laughs> you know, when I'm invited to dinner and I want to seek the place of honor or I, or I don't want to seem too eager. Like why am I doing those things? Whatever that is, that may be the, the beachhead, the front line, so to speak, of God's activity in your heart. It's not a place where you go, oh, gosh, I'm so bad. It's a place where you can say, oh, God, you're so good. You're so good that you've given me the grace enough to, to perceive this in my life. What might you want to do here? How might I participate in the way that your kingdom is now breaking into my life? Does that make sense? I think God longs to do that. The good news today, family, is that the kingdom of God is not musical chairs. You don't have to live with the anxiety that you don't belong or that you need to make your way up in the world. The table of Jesus is always expanding. It's expanded to include you, and because it's included you, we now belong to each other. Amen? Let's pray.